This episode is brought to you by Santos Threads. Make sure to visit Santos-Threads for the latest and greatest in men's and women's Latino urban-inspired streetwear. Visit santos-threads.com. Hey, you are now listening to the Santos Says Podcast, episode number 40. Once again with you. Your host, Santos, proud owner of Santos Threads. Of course, make sure you visit santos-threads.com. And of course, once again with you guys, uh, make sure you also follow me on social media, uh, Santos Thread Shop, as on uh, Instagram, as well as on TikTok, Santos Thread Shop. If you are watching on YouTube, please, please, it costs you nothing. Like, comment, share, subscribe, the whole thing, share it with all your friends, and away we go. Happy to be with you guys once more. I have a really special guest. I'm excited to bring in this special guest, which I, full disclosure, I did not think when I first started this venture last year that I would be speaking with people in the political spectrum or political world, if you will. And so I am very happy for this opportunity. I have this gentleman here with me today on this episode. Uh, joining me is a person who is who calls himself a basically the, the the person who is for the common man, the person who is against the slumlords, the abuses of uh, people within his region, within the area he serves. He is he his name is Wilf, Wilfredo Lopez. He is someone who is uh, going for New York State Assembly, uh, District 68. Uh, he calls himself Will. I'm going to talk to him about his willpower movement. I'm going to speak to him about some of his interests, some of his aspirations now moving forward. Um, obviously, he has aspirations for June 28th. He has an election coming up. So he's going to talk about all those things and more. But it's not going to just be a political thing. It's going to be we're going to talk to the man because there is a man behind all of that. And we're going to get with him. And of course, he is a Boricua as well, like myself. Uh, he serves the East Harlem, Upper Manhattan District. And so we're going to get a minute. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the program, Will Lopez. Hey, thank you so much, Santos, for uh, having me on. I'm really excited to, uh, to chop it up with you today. Um, and thank you so much for that introduction, man. I got I got to hire you to be my hype man around town. <laughs> hey, listen, you know what? I Look, I, I have a, a great deal of respect for what you're doing. Obviously, you... I had to do my homework on you. I found, you know, it, it's so great. It's an honor, the honor and a privilege to have you here because I, I know, you know, what you're doing is great. Like, I, I see what you're doing and I know that you're, you know, you you have, you're really all about it. You're about it. So I felt like we had to do it and, and we had great conversations offline. And so uh, it's a privilege and thank you for joining me. Amen. I'm, I'm, I'm really, like I said, uh, you know, been, been following your stuff since you reached out to me, got, got to get to know your, uh, your product line and also, uh, the message and, you know, I lined up with what I'm trying to do. We're trying to empower our community. So, uh, it's a great platform and I'm happy to add to it. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, definitely. So we'll get right into it. Right. Um, so you, you have a battle, uh, I'll call it a quote unquote, battle coming up, right? You're ready. To tell us all about that. I want to know about that before we go into your background, but I just want to get into that because it's very important. What you have going on and talk to us what, you know, let us know what it is that you're working on right now for June. Yeah. So right now we're in the midst of a very contentious uh, primary. So, you know, June 28th is the primary date. Early voting starts June 18th. And essentially, uh, you know, right now we have for lack of a better word, a vacant seat. So the seat was previously held by Roberto Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez, who is, you know, he's, he was in that seat for over a decade. Uh, Robert has a long history with East Harlem. His dad was also an elected official here back in the 80s. Uh, and he stepped down to become the Secretary of State for New York, which is amazing because right now he is the highest ranking Latino in government in New York State. So we're really proud of uh, the work he did. Um, and, you know, Robert came to me and asked me to consider running, you know, as soon as he made his decision, uh, partly because he, he wanted someone that was going to be ready day one to continue the work that he started and someone who has, you know, the ability to 
you know, walk down the street, talk to your, you know, to, to your resident, but also go to Albany and fight for money and fight for resources for our community. Um, so right now, you know, we just finished the petitioning uh, process, which is how you get on the ballot. Happy to report we are the first uh, to make it on the ballot. We, you know, we handed in almost 3,000 signatures. You only need 500. So I turn in, you know, close to 3,000. We got zero challenges. Uh, so we're on. So, you know, you'll be you'll see my name on two different lines because I'm running as a Democrat and I'm also endorsed by the Working Families Party, uh, doing part because of the work that I do uh, to fight against, you know, evil landlords and also uh, the work I do in the community. Uh, so we'll know by the next week who else makes it onto the ballot. Uh, there is someone who has been, you know, sitting in the seat for the last couple months. Uh, they, they were put there by the party establishment. Uh, there was a real uh, insider uh, county committee process uh, that, you know, allowed this person to to be, you know, the, the sitting assembly member. Um, and he was he went up to Albany for two months and, you know, really hasn't done anything to benefit our community. So, you know, we're looking to change that on June 28th. There you go. Listen, I, I love it. I love it because you know what? Um, see, I, I like that. That was very respectful. And because listen, it is a, it's a, it's like you're, it's like an athlete, right? It's like you're an athlete. It's your competition. And I don't, I don't care who you are and what walk of life you're in, right? You always want to be a competitor and you always have to believe that you can do the best job, no matter who it is you're competing against. And it's never personal. It's a competition. It's like in the lines of, right? And I, I believe politics is very similar to that as well, right? You're in the line of competition. You know what you're capable of doing. You know, you have your belief. And you feel that you're, you're always going to have that confidence. And so I, I really like that. <laughs> I like how you said that. And, and I'll be honest, you know, you know, he, I consider him a friend. I consider him, you know, a valuable member of this community. Um, and his strength is really working in this community. And that's, you know, th that's what he's been doing for a long time. And the other folks who are planning on running, I consider them friends as well. You know, it's not personal. I just feel I'm better qualified and I'm better. I'm, I'm ready to do this work. We can't afford another minute of having no representation at the state, you know, at the state level. It's been going on for too long and we have too much, you know, too much on the line right now. I, I agree. And, and before we get into that, because I really, I'm fascinated as far as like, I really want to know what it is that you're going to bring to the table. And we spoke a little offline. I was like, look, I need you to tell, talk to us, but because there's a lot of issues right now, let's, let's be honest. And that was a big reason why I wanted you to come on here because I'm someone who I'm very, I'm not going to say I know everything there is to know about politics. I don't. But I am very well versed in that I, I inform myself. You know, I like to read about what's going on. I don't just go by one source. I follow multiple sources, right? Because I want to get all of the aspects and perspectives. So I do want to hear your perspective as far as where we are, not only in the District 68, right? But as a city in the totality, as we're making a transition right now, we have um, obviously Mayor Adams who, had, who took over earlier this year. And so we're in a transitional period and there are a lot of issues there. I, I want your thoughts on those things as yeah. well, but I just want to touch briefly on your background. Tell us about your background, where you come from and what does East Harlem mean to you? Yeah. So I grew up the youngest of, you know, seven siblings. Uh, so, you know, I'm the baby of the family. Uh, I spent the early part of my life in Puerto Rico. I uh, lived in San Sebastián and Ponce. That's where, you know, my, my dad and uh, my family. Boricua. Boricua, puro de, de, de nacimiento ahí. Um, so my mm -hmm. mom was a, my mom ran the family bodega. That's, you know, th that was what she did while raising all of us. Uh, my dad was a union electrician, um, you know, and we worked hard, you know, struggling to put food on the table and just trying to do a little bit better every day. Um, inspired by that determination, you know, I, you know, fought hard. I had to navigate a failing school system for parents who didn't speak the language. Um, you know, and I, I ended up being the first in my family to go to college, which was a triumph on his own. Uh, the reality was that, you know, that wasn't in the cards. All my brothers ended up going to the military and my sisters, you know, went right to work. So it was up to me to really, you know, carry on that dream for my parents. Um, I spent uh, a decade after college working in retail because I graduated during one of the worst recessions um, in our country. It was right after 9-11. You know, yes. if, if you're old enough to remember, yeah, yeah. hard. so I took a job. I'm older than I look. <laughs> I took a job working at Best Buy. And, you know, I'm proud of that. I started stocking shelves. 
And within a couple of years, I was running that store. Uh, so I spent, you know, a great decade working with people, learning how to, you know, learning how to sell, learning how to really, you know, work within a community of people. Um, and then after I turned 30, I was like, man, and I've always had a dream to be a lawyer, but it was always too, like, it was too far to reach. Uh, either money or my parents' health, something always got in the way. So I got rid of all the obstacles. I put my mind to it. And at age 33, I went to law school, uh, ended up graduating with honors. And from there, I went on to practice law. Uh, I started off as an immigration defense attorney, helping out our undocumented you know, neighbors. Um, and then I had an opportunity to go work at a progressive DA's office in Brooklyn. Um, and I really went there with the thought of, you know, I can change, help change the system from the inside. Let me tell you, I was wrong. The system cannot be changed from the inside. The system has to be changed. Uh, both inside and out. So I turned my, you know, my focus into policy. Uh, I went to work at the New York City Council. I was a legislative director there uh, for four years, um, where I passed, you know, about 20, 21 laws in my time there. Uh, and a lot of them affect East Harlem. So I'll, I'll give you a brief example of the, the kind of things that I, uh, that I learned while I was there. So, you know, I was approached by an organization that told me like, hey, New York City Parks is spraying pesticides 10 times more often in communities of color than they are in the white neighborhoods. Mm. And I was like, all right, let's look at the data. So we took a look at two parks, Thomas Jefferson Park here in East Harlem and Carl Schurz Park in, in the Upper East Side. The parks are maybe 20 blocks away from each other. Uh, Thomas Jefferson Park was sprayed almost 20 times more than Carl Schurz. Oh. And those, these pesticides were terrible. I mean, this stuff has been banned in over 40 countries. It's the same stuff that, you know, when you hear about all those lawsuits where people are suing uh, companies for like billions of dollars, it was the same thing that they were spraying in our neighborhoods. You know, our children are playing in this, our pets play. We're running and playing around this stuff. So I managed to write the law that banned the use of that pesticide so that we, you know, you know our parks are safe. So I worked on, on, on a lot of issues. Um, and then, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, this is my full-time job It's being a candidate. I'm out on the streets every day, knocking on doors. If you haven't seen me yet, you will, uh, because I'm relentless. I get up at 6 AM every day and I don't go to bed till after midnight. Um, you know, my wife and, you know, she, she's like, I barely see you, but I understand you're doing your mission. Um, so, you know, that's what I'm about. Uh, you know, my personal time, if I have any right now. Uh, I try to relax. I'm a big music, you know, music guy. I like to listen to a lot of music, wide, you know, wide variety of tastes. Um, and honestly, I like to explore. East Harlem has been like a welcomed, uh, like kind of, um, I don't even know, like uh, it's like a paradise to me because I can literally go in any direction and discover something new. You know, I wasn't born here. You know, I my dad came here in 1958 uh, after fighting the Korean War, like a lot of other, you know, Puerto Ricanos who came off the war. He started his life here. Uh, you know, I have, a, you know, siblings that, that were born in and around East Harlem. But this was always our our Mecca. So whenever my dad was like, oh, let's go, let's go to El Barrio, you know, we were going to the same spots. We used to go to La Marqueta back in the day when it was still La Marqueta. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad used to hit up the same music shop on 116th Street. That's where, he, like, my parents had eight tracks, like you wouldn't believe, and they were all. You talking about Reynaldo? Yeah. Listen, so. let me. I could tell you this is this is about you, but I have I have some stories. I used to like I grew up I grew up in Brooklyn, but my family was in the music industry. We all those music stores they all know my family. So like, we used to come up here every weekend. Growing up, like in the 90s, I used to come up here all the time. And um, my parents, you know, my family, they were in the music industry. So the music business. So we used to come up here all the time, Marqueta. We used to go to Cuchifritos all the time. So like we had those stories. So that you just brought me back. So I just had to, yeah, I had to no, tell you that. I, mean, that, that, I used to come up here as a kid. I grew up in Brooklyn, but I, I used to go up to the Barrio all the time. I mean, that, that, that was, uh, that, that was a weekly, you know, excursion for, for my dad, you know, he, he'd hang out, um, show me his old stomping grounds, you know, if they still existed. Cause I mean, we're yeah. talking 30 years, you yeah, know, 30 year difference. 
Um, but I always felt like I owed a, a debt to this community uh, because they took my father in. They really gave him this first chance. So when I started working at the city council, um, I requested uh, East Harlem as kind of my my area um, and really threw myself into the community. So, you know, between the community board, uh, I also serve Metropolitan Hospital, their uh, community advisory board, um, and really just trying to solve the problems that we see every day. Uh, there are a lot of them. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't need to, to, to sit here and tell people what the problems are. We all know what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is that, you know, people have a lot of, you know, thoughts about it, but they don't have solutions or they're not thinking about solutions. And if you just talk to your neighbors, if you talk to the people who are living here, they'll tell you what it takes to solve it. You just have to have, you know, here I go, the willpower to do it. Um, so it's, you know, that's really what, what this mission is about. Um, I'm not one for titles. I do this work, you know, without a title, I don't care about that stuff. I honestly just want to make East Harlem, you know, a, a, a great place to, to live. Um, I don't have kids yet, but when I do, they're going to be born here, and I want them to make sure that this is the best community possible. I may not have been born here, but I sure as hell I'm going to die here. So I want to enjoy the next, you know, 50, 60 years, however many, you know, the good Lord provides for me. I want to enjoy them here. That's commendable. Just having that passion that you do, because you can see it. I mean, I, I've seen what you've done. I've seen your, your I've, I see you creeping up on little by little in a good way, right? I see you creeping up, and, and I see you're getting ready for that big date obviously in June. And I want to ask you, what is your what is your opinion on people who say, hey, I don't believe in politicians? Because there is a great segment of people who feel kind of disillusioned or feel there's a great deal of, hey, they don't care about us. What do you say to those people who have that uh, sort of out- outlook? I mean, I, I agree with them. I can't stand politicians, you know, and I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, well, I'm not a, I'm not a politician. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a regular, you know, guy. Um, you know, a politician is someone who will tell you one thing and then do another. I'm a big fan of looking at people's records, looking at what they've done, what they, you know, you know, the, the type of work that they that they live on. What are their values? Um, there are some great elected officials in both in East Harlem and across New York City. And they all have something in common. You know, they talk, they say what they say, and they mean what they say. Um, so that's what I look at. That's why I think it's important for, you know, people, just regular people who are not involved in, in the political process. Look up your elected officials. What are they voting on? You know, what are their priorities? You know, go to their office. You know, see who's working there. See if, if it's reflective of the community. See if... You know, they're they're out and, you know, at events. Do they show up? Um, you know, I, I'm lucky to have a lot of mentors uh, in, in, in government. Um, and I'm very picky about who I let be a mentor of mine because I want to make sure I'm learning from the best. So when I pick yeah. someone to, to mentor me, um, I'm looking for the same qualities that I want to emulate. You know, I'll tell you an example. Gail Brewer, you may have heard of her. She was the former uh, borough president of Manhattan. She's now a council member from the West yes. Side. Yes. Gail is everywhere. I mean, I yes. went to an event yesterday at Union Settlement in East Harlem. No longer her district. She was there. Wow. I, I, go, I, I go to check out the unveiling of uh, the street uh, co-naming, um, 109th Street. She was there. Like, that is a person who shows up. And she's not doing it because she's running for office. She's doing it because she cares. That's the kind of, you know, elected official I want to emulate. You know, another one, uh, Gustavo Rivera, he's a state mm-hmm. senator from the Bronx. Uh, you know, he was the first person to endorse me and, and, and back me up. He's a steadfast fighter. I mean, that, that, that man will go to Albany and fight like hell for his district. Um, he's also, you know, the chairman of the health committee. So he's fighting for all of our health. He's the lead sponsor of the New York Health Act that when it passes, will give all of us you know, healthcare, regardless of money, regardless of whatever, it, it's going to be universal healthcare for New Yorkers, something that we absolutely need to pass. So those are the types of individuals that I look for, uh, mentor. And when, when I tell people, you know, when people tell me I hate politicians, I agree with them. Uh, we, we need less politicians and we need, re- you know, real servant leaders, people who won't tell you what to do, you know, they won't tell you to do something they won't do themselves. So, you know, get, you know, really look into uh, who, you're, who you're letting lead you and pick someone who agrees with your values and someone who's going to fight for you. 
I think a lot of you're right. And I, I believe also, to be fair, a lot of times we're we're misinformed. You know, there's a lot of misinformation. I also think we don't, you know, we have the power in our hands. A lot of times we don't realize it. Like we have to hold, you know, elected officials are there to serve the community. Yep. And it we have the obligation to do our homework, do our research, and really not in a contentious way, but in a way that is helpful for everyone. Call them out when necessary and, and you know, take them to task when you have to, or, or not even just that, hold them accountable. Hold yeah. these officials accountable. And that's for anybody, regardless of who they are. And I think that's what we, we need to do as a collective, no matter where you live. Um, yeah. all, all powers with the people. Um, and, you know, as elected officials, you know, once elected, you know, I'm holding that power for you. It's not my power. It's your power. And if I'm not listening to, you know, the, the, the community, if I'm not listening to my constituents, then you have all the power in the world to get rid of me. Um, so, you know, my personal feelings on something don't count as much as, you know, what the community is telling me to do. So you have to always, you know, be led by the community. Uh, the best elected officials will tell you that. Just listen to what the, the the people tell you, and you'll never be steered wrong. So that's what I hope to to bring to uh, to East Harlem. Definitely. Now, you, you mentioned obviously you're aware of a lot of the issues that exist. Um, one of them, I'm curious to know your take on this. Mm -hmm. um, one of them that you mentioned, you are a slumlord buster. That is what is on your Instagram, right? It's on your right there, front page. What is it that you've noticed about that? What has been your experience of that uh, with that as far as Slumlord Buster? Because obviously we know they're in abundance. Even though they place rules and procedures and laws, they always find ways to kind of wiggle out of them. I have personal experience with them. That's why I'm telling you. Talk yeah. to me about that. I'll, I'll tell you right now in full disclosure, I don't hate every landlord. You know, there are, yeah, I, I never paint everyone with the same brush. There are some great landlords out there. And the reality is we need more of them. Um, but when I call myself a slumlord buster, I say that because, you know, the building I was living in on 117th and Lex, uh, two days after I moved in, they cut the gas on us, on the entire building. Um, wow. And I like, I'm like, okay, this is weird. The, the super is like, oh yeah, it's only going to be off for a couple of days. We didn't have gas for over a year and a half. And then the pandemic hit. And still nothing. So think about those early months of the pandemic when we couldn't go out. You know, delivery was, if you could find delivery, you know, it was expensive and it, it was very difficult to. Oh, at uh, that time, it was not like now. Like you, you see now everybody's right. There's an Uber Eats everywhere. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Back then, yeah. you're right. It was, yeah. I had a, I, you know, my wife and I had to do two Thanksgiving, two Christmases on a hot plate. And hmm. let me tell you, that ain't easy. We also had to buy a electric oven and an air fryer. So I put on like 40 pounds, which ain't, it ain't good. I lost most of it since, but, you know, and when I was talking to my neighbors and this is a, a pretty decent building, I mean, we had 60, 65 units. Um, I was talking to my neighbors and some of them had been there for 40 plus years and they're like, yeah, the landlord, you know, they, they do this every couple of years to try to get people to move out. Um, and then what mm. I was noticing was as people were moving out, the construction teams were going in, renovating the apartments. Oh, yeah. Yep. And all of a sudden, we had new neighbors. Mm -hmm. and they had all electric equipment, so they didn't need the gas. Um, so we, me and a couple of other uh, tenants, we got together and we're like, you know what? Let's start a TA. Let's start a, a tenants association. And for my, you know, the listeners out there and the folks watching, it doesn't take anything other than uh, you know, more than two people to agree to rules and you have a TA association. It's like the easiest thing in the world. You don't need to file any paperwork with the state. You don't need to do any, you don't have to pay anything. It's the easiest thing in the world. So once we formed that TA, you know, we decided to go out and get some help. So we partnered up with a great community organization here in East Harlem, Community Voices Heard, otherwise known as CVH. You know, they're great at organizing. Um, they clued us into free legal services at Manhattan Legal Services. Um, and we sued the landlord. The, the landlord, the, the landlord's company was Emerald Equities. They had not only our building, but they had about six other properties in East Harlem and the same thing was happening to them. 
So we pulled up their business plan and in their business plan, they literally said that their business is to get rid of long-term residents in order to bring in new higher paying residents. That is mm. the definition of gentrification. And that was yeah. in their business plan. They had just signed a like a $60 million loan for all the properties. So we're like, okay, we're just going to stop paying rent. We had an eviction moratorium. We had all the protections of law and we started a rent strike. So you had 60 units not paying rent. First month, nothing. Second month, they start sending letters. Third month, they start trying to negotiate. By the fourth month, they declare bankruptcy. Wow. So they they went bankrupt and they thought that we were just going to let that go. Nah, we, we found a bankruptcy attorney that was willing to help us out. We sued them in bankruptcy court and we moved right to the top of the line in, in bankruptcy. Um, and they ended up negotiating. So we got all of our back rent forgiven. Uh, there were some folks who had almost $100,000 in back rent because they had been withholding for a long time. That all got wiped away. They got The gas got turned back on. Um, they, they started doing the repairs and they started to look for someone to sell the building to. So right now, uh, we're working on finding a nonprofit to take over the building and maybe convert it into co-ops because if we don't own our own apartments, we'll never have equal power uh, in our community. So, you know, we're looking for opportunities to create real wealth. And the best way to do that is by owning owning where we live. So any opportunity that we have to do that, we have to jump all over it. So that's the kind of experience that I have. Wow. And that's, only one, that's only one of many wow. other experiences that, that, you know, I share that a lot of, you know, a lot of folks I talk to. Uh, I grew up in Section 8 housing. It was always messed up. You know, when I talk to folks in in our in our NYCHAs, I mean, I've never heard someone right. say, I love I love my NYCHA apartment. No, they, no. they tell you, <laughs> I love my community, but this this apartment's terrible and this is what's wrong with it. Uh so as I'm going around, you know, people are inviting me into their home, they're showing me the, you know, the, the issues. I'm addressing them as I can. Uh I, you know, they do not like me down at the NYCHA offices because I'm always calling on behalf of people. But that's all right. It's not their job to like me. It's their right, job to right. do their job. So yep. that, that that's one of the biggest issues, and that's why, you know, I, I I'll take I'll take the title Slumlord Buster. Uh, one of my good friends was like, you know, they, they gave me that name, and I'm like, well, if, if the shoe fits, I'll wear it. Um, but that's what you know. That's what I'm fighting for. There's a lot of housing issues here. Um, we live in one of the poorest uh, sections of New York City. The average person here in East Harlem earns about $35,000 a year. Yeah. But yet when they calculate the rents for, you know, for affordable housing, the rent start, you know, they, they calculate it at 70, $70,000 up yes. because they look at the area income and we have the Upper East Side to the south of us. North to us, we have Westchester and we're also included with parts of Queens, um, Long Island and the rest of Manhattan. So when they look at the area average, you take all those incomes and the average income comes out to over $70,000, which is, I mean, it, it's too it's too too expensive uh, for, for our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was looking, a, a new building was announced, you know, with rents, uh, you know, close to, to central Harlem. And they're like, oh, yeah, in order to live here, and this is a rent-stabilized building, oh, and you need to have $90,000 in income. I, I don't know many people in East Harlem that had $90,000 in income. No. So no, who's moving in there? It ain't it ain't people from 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 this community. No, from not, my, yeah, and that's cheap for some, you know, and that's a, obviously not, you know, not putting anyone down, but that's cheap if you know, say you got somebody who's from out of town or mm -hmm. someone who's coming from Midtown, right? Say for them, that's cheap. A person that lives in Midtown or even on the Upper East Side, they're like, hey, this is cheap, ninety thousand dollar average minimum. I'm there, right? Yeah. For them, that's cheap. So yeah. So I mean, we 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 have to change that. And I mean, that's a the the area income the the way they calculate it. That's all done by HUD, which is the, the Housing right. and Urban Development, which is a federal uh, agency. But I'm advocating for uh, there to be a carve out for New York City because their calculations may work out in Iowa, it may work out in Ohio, but it does <laughs> right, not work right. here in New York City. So oh. we need to be able to calculate our income by community neighborhood or community board districts, um, because again, 
I live I live north of 96th Street. I live right on 99th. If I go three blocks down, the area income jumps up to double what it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't work. It's not working here. So we need to change that. You know, and, and yeah, I mean, you, you can draw the, you know, like, you know, like I've been around, I've seen it. Like you can draw, literally, you know, the cutoff. Like I always joke, like there's a cutoff, right? You got a cutoff. You can see, okay, this is where Starbucks is. This is the cutoff. Right. Usually I would I say usually it's really you could say 99, but you could really make the arguments 96. Well, right. I, 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 96 I draw, range. 99. I draw it a 96. You know why? If you go down to 96 and first. Right. right yes. At the R. On the south side of 96th Street, there's a hockey rink. Yes. On the north side, there's a basketball court and a handball court. That yep. is the perfect definition of, you know, the, the them drawing the line yeah and they, they drew that line perfectly um this is you know and and this is a, a symptom of the systemic racism that exists yeah all that you know redlining that that happened redlining. i'm sure your listeners are familiar yeah. with the term redlining uh that all started with a guy named robert moses who was oh man one of the most evil individuals to ever exist in New York city. Um, and he was a noted white supremacist who honestly, he, the reason the, the city looks the way it does is because of his vision. Um, this is a guy who is so evil that if you go to a, a pool South of 96th street, the temperature is higher. It's a, it, the temperatures are set like around 68 degrees. But if you go to a pool North of 96th street, they used to put the temperature at 55 and 58 degrees because his thought was that, you know, people of color don't like cold water. So maybe they won't go into the pools. Yes. Uh, yes. This is the, 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 the level of systemic racism that we're combating against. And, you know, the man died, that, you know, almost 50 years ago. And we're still trying to fix a lot of the problems that he created. You know, what's funny, I, my I, my reaction when you mentioned I love that you mentioned Robert Moses. Robert Moses is single handedly and people put him on a pedestal. Because he, and look, I understand, all right, if you want to go for, okay, he helped, he was kind of like the brains behind some of the modern highway, if you will, New York, obviously, he loved cars, even though he never drove, but he had, you know, he's, he's got the, uh, what do you call it, the, the architect of the bridges, he, a lot of those things, right, the state parks, all that stuff, I know exactly what you know, and he, this man literally tore apart neighborhoods he utilized policies such as slum clearance. Um, he destroyed an old neighborhood that was called San Juan Hill, which they decide, which is now Lincoln Center mm -hmm. for jazz and the arts. But he, along with Chase Manhattan Bank and a lot of different companies and Rockefeller, all destroyed neighborhoods of black and brown people. You know, I tell people all the time, look up, like before there was Harlem, there was a neighborhood called San Juan Hill. Yep. that existed on the west side, the 50s, 59th Street, 60th mm -hmm. on the west side. Robert Moses tore that down. He used what was known as slum clearance, and then you had the redlining, obviously, that took place. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm i telling you, what you said, you hit it right in the head. I mean, he basically, he made it so that he built parks on Long Island because he and he didn't want the Long Island Railroad or any transportation to go there Right. Because he wanted to keep Puerto Ricans specifically and blacks away from Long Island. Yeah. That so was he, what he did. He, he made the, the, the overpasses too low so that buses can get through. Yes. Like that is some diabolical thinking right there. Like, like you know, I, I picture Robert Moses the way like, you know, remember the bad guy from Inspector Gadget? Yes, yes, yes. Hair, like stroking a cat. That's what I picture him being, because like you have to be that evil to 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 think about things like that. Um, yes. so I mean we're still we're still fighting all those issues. Um, and when you look at why uh like a, a community like East Harlem has the highest concentration of public housing, it's because of the redlining that he did. I mean, right now the 68th assembly district has 20 NYCHAs, it used to be 21, but we lost uh, MLK Towers uh, during the last redistricting. But we have, you know, 20 NYCHAs in our district. That's more than any other district in uh, in New York City. Um, 
you would think we would get the bulk of the investment for public housing, but we don't. So these are the you know these are the problems that we're fighting. Uh, we need someone who's ready to take that fight. Someone who has the information and knows some you know what to do about it. Uh, so we need that advocacy in uh, in Albany, and we need to bring those resources back into our community. Now, you're you're one hundred percent right. Now here's the question I have to ask you, and you know that you're going to be up against it. Are you ready? I know you're the you know you take great pride in being the slumlord buster, and you've done some great things according to your stories and as far as what you've done. And you're to be commended for that. My question for you is, are you ready to take on that juggernaut that is known as NYCHA? Because there have been people that have tried to take on that battle for years. Mm -hmm. um, what is it that you plan to do? Now, obviously, you're not going to have all the answers right away. But what I mean is just what, is, what are your ideas as far as taking on that behemoth that is known as NYCHA? Yeah, I mean, and when we're talking about NYCHA, now we're fighting multiple battles on, on, on several fronts. So not only do we have the battle of trying to figure out where do we come up with $40 billion to do the capital repairs that are necessary, um, you know, where, you know, we're also fighting against privatization. Uh, you know, the real estate industry, uh, you know, big real estate, they're looking at, you know, public housing as uh, the next, you know, the, the, the next frontier in order to privatize it. And what we have found is in other, you know, other municipalities across the country, when they privatize public housing, it leads to higher evictions, it leads to worse management, um, and it eventually leads to the bankrupting of the, the public housing. So we have to fight against privatization. Um, and then there's also this, uh, you know, movement to create uh, the NYCHA Trust but there aren't enough answers to the questions that the residents have before they'll support it. Um, so the, the thought behind, you know, what I want to do around NYCHA is we need to cut down that bureaucracy and we really need to put the power into the residents' hands. I have never met a single resident of, of a NYCHA development that doesn't know the problems and doesn't have an idea of how to fix them. Yeah. So we're not doing enough to listen and do this from a grassroots uh, mentality where we're getting the, the, the solutions from the residents. I would love to have each individual NYCHA become its own entity. Like every development becomes its own entity with its own governing structure. That's not like a TA association that has no power. I'm talking about an, uh, uh, almost like a board similar to co-ops where the board controls you know, where the money gets allocated, the board controls, you know, the, the, the budget, they do the hiring of the, uh, the contractors that are going to come in and they really have the ability to uh, impact their developments. Uh, NYCHA as a whole would still exist only to cut the checks and to administer the, you know, the necessary paperwork, but the real power would, would rely on each individual, uh, development, um, that's going to take a lot of work. That's going to take a lot of uh, partnerships. But every time I talk about that, you know, the the, the, the tenants in NYCHA and the residents in NYCHA are very positive about it because, you know, the reality is when I have a question about NYCHA, I don't call a bureaucrat. I call a TA leader. I call a resident. Yeah. I'm like, hey, tell me about this issue. Tell me about that issue. And that's how I teach myself what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and having that that awareness, right? That that tact saying, hey, listen, I know exactly who I have to go to for this is super important. Like it's it's important. And you're already decisive in that and you know what you have to do. And and I think that's important. Um another issue, right? So let's let's address another issue that's very important, probably even more so more important, and that is the issue of crime. Yeah. Um have you noticed, and it's just me, since when I would walk around lots of parts of the, of the city, whether it's in upper Manhattan or East Harlem, wherever it may be, I've noticed that there has been a, <clears throat> unless it's in front of some of the housing or NYCHA uh, facilities, I noticed there isn't as much police presence. Are you, do you feel that there's truth to that? And if so, what is it, what do you feel that can be done with that, if that is the case? You know, when I look at public safety, uh, I look at it, you know, holistically, like, 
you got to look at the uh, at the bigger picture. You know, public safety is not just about you know crime. It's not just about police. You know, we got to look at every factor that leads to it. You know, I, th- I I'm a firm believer that housing is a public safety issue. I'm a, yeah. I'm a big believer that climate change is a is a um, a public safety issue. Um, and when I when when we talk about the crime. You know, when we're looking at the statistics, you know, they look pretty bad, especially when we talk about, you know, the worst type of, quote, crime, which is gun crime and, and violent crime. You know, shootings are up uh, year over year. Um, you know, violent, uh, you know, violent attacks are, are up. But when we look at the, when we zoom out and we look at the bigger picture, overall crime is down. And part of that is because, you know, they're, you have, le- you, have, you have less people out and about because of the pandemic. Um, and you also have the decriminalization of a lot of the low-level crimes that led to higher statistics. You know, cops can't bust you anymore for, you know, for marijuana unless you're smoking in an area where you're not supposed to be. Um, you know, they're not really going after turnstile jumpers anymore. You know, these were the, the gateways into the criminal justice system. Um, so not going after that stuff has lessened the overall crime. Um, in terms of police presence, you know, the reality is that you know, we have 35,000 you know, police officers across New York City. I'm not someone who's anti-cop, but I'm also not pro-cop. You know what I am? I'm pro-better cop. Um, my, my sister, my older sister was a police officer in New York City for 25 years. Uh, she worked in the Bronx. Um, and she was there during the eighties and nineties when, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it was hot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so she, you know, I, when I talk to her, she even tells me, she goes, man, it's nothing like it used to be, but back then guns weren't the biggest issue, you know, now it is. So we really need to start looking at, you know, are the police able to do what they're supposed to do in terms of what their mandate is? And the answer to that is no. And the reason why is because we're using police for everything. If there's a, uh, a person who's dealing with substance use disorder or addiction, having a crisis on 125th Street, we call the cops. Right, right. If there is a nonviolent argument happening in our, you know, in our building, we call the police. Yep. If you know, a cat is stuck in a tree, we call the police, you know, we we call the police for everything. And what happens is when they're running around doing all these other things and being expected to handle all the issues that have really little to do with, you know, crime, it takes them away from being able to do the work that they're supposed to do. Um, a, A perfect example of this is, you know, it was a terrible tragedy that happened here in East Harlem in, in early January, you know, Crystal Baidon Nieves was uh, you know, murdered while she was working at Burger King on yeah. 116th Street. That that mm-hmm. was my Burger King. Um, and we, you know, the community banded together. We supported the police and the police like put everything down and they focused on that case. And they were able to, cat, you know, apprehend the, uh, the suspect within two days. Why? Because that's all they were working on. And that's the level of involvement that the police need to take in those sort of, you know, those situations. And they also need to be out here collecting guns, you know, making sure that we stop the inflow of illegal guns into East Harlem. Last time I checked, there isn't a single place in East Harlem where you could buy a legal gun. Why do we have so many illegal ones? It's because they're coming from down south. Um, you know, just the other day, right in front of my, my building, you know, there was an interaction where police were able to recover five guns from uh, a vehicle. Uh, because they had all the, you know, they, they had all the information they, they knew who they were looking for, and they were able to apprehend him before he got, you know, to his destination. So what I what I'm advocating for is a civilianized mental health response unit. Um, it, there, there's already a, a law up in Albany called Daniel's Law, which would create, you know, allow the municipalities to create these uh, teams. These teams would be staffed by EMS. Uh, social workers, mental health professionals, and their job is if there's a person having a mental health crisis or addiction-related crisis, they go out. If there is a uh, domestic disturbance that is non-violent, there are no weapons you know, being reported, nothing like that, they go out and they're the ones who, who have the first interaction 
with you know with the people um and that the whole point of this unit is to lessen the load on the police to allow the police to do the investigations to allow the police to do the um the uh the violence deterrence and allow the police to do their 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 job so that is how we can help end the the issues with crime um it's you know, we can add 60,000 more police officers and get the same results, or we can eliminate the responsibilities that they have that are not within their job title and have a focus on what they're supposed to do. And I think we'll get better results that way. And if you ask, you know, police officers, if they rather just do that, I'm pretty sure they'd be very agreeable to it. I, you know what, I, I like that take. I actually, I really do respect that take because it's different from what I would think or what most people would think, right? I think a lot of times we <clears throat> we get caught up in the sheer volume, uh, the volume of, right? Just the volume of people, right? Oh, let's get more manpower there, right? Let's get more people there, more police officers here, more police officers there, more cars there. But in reality, it's about the allocation of the resources that you have. And the same goes for the police force. Um, I think you're you're 100% right about that. So one of the the last issue I want to ask you about is something else that I I have on my mind as far as the area goes as well. Um and that would be substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So substance abuse obviously it it's no secret there's there's an issue um in certain areas and certain um on certain blocks where you would see it's more pronounced than others. Um, I want to ask you about this particular street that I've noticed for a long time. It's had a substance issue, a substance abuse uh, issue. Um, 125th Street and Lexington Avenue. Mm -hmm. I understand there are obviously right there are. I believe there's a methadone program close by, and there are a couple other uh, substance abuse related facilities within the area. What if anything? And again, I don't know if you have the answer for this. I'm just asking for your take. What, if anything, can be done to to kind of clean up that that spot? Because I know I, I've gone through there a lot. I've passed through there. That area is is really has for a long time has been a really. I I want to say this the right way. It's a, it can be an eyesore sometimes. Yeah, I'm not. I, you know, it's been a very tricky place. It's it's very it's dangerous. It's um a lot of drug use there, right? To to put it nicely. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, it, it's an absolute uh, terrible uh, situation that we have there. And unfortunately, you know, our government and our, you know, our leaders are partly to blame for the, the issues that are happening there. So the reason why there's such a concentration of substance abuse and, you know, open air, uh, open air drug market there is because we have an oversaturation of treatment centers in and around the 125th Street corridor. So, uh, you know, I hate to throw out stats and numbers, but and this is a case where the, the numbers speak for themselves. So East Harlem has about one and a half percent of the entire city's population. Right. So we're not, you know, we're not that, we're not that big. We're only one and a half percent, but we're carrying almost 14% of the drug treatment capacity in East Harlem. Mm. And if we add Central Harlem, that number jumps up to almost 20%, right? That's the capacity. Now, mm. we have hundreds, if not thousands of people that are getting treated here in East Harlem every single day. They're getting methadone seven days a week. Right. Unfortunately, out of all those numbers, only about 3% of them live in East Harlem. The majority mm, of people right. are coming from everywhere else. Some as for obvious reasons. For yeah. obvious reasons, yeah. Yeah, because we have the space. You know, we we you know, we have people coming in from Westchester, from the West Side, we have them coming from Queens, Brooklyn. We even have some people coming in from Jersey to get treated every day. And I've done a lot, a lot of work around this. I've done a lot of research. And the medical research says that if you have to travel more than one mile to seek treatment for substance use disorder, you have a 50% chance of failing. Wow. We're setting, we're setting people up to fail. And because you have this massive concentration, there are about eight centers on, on 125th Street between yes. Lennox 
and in uh, in Lexington, which is only a few avenues. Um, because you have that that concentration, and you don't have enough resources for what they call wraparound services, yes. which is what do you do for the you know for the people seeking treatment after they get treatment? You let them out in the street, and then what happens? They're out there. They're vulnerable. And if you know you're a businessman, you got to yes. go to where the clients are, right? Where yes. where your customers are, that's where you need to be. If you're a drug dealer, if you're a drug trafficker, you're gonna go to where the you know the 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 mm-hmm. most people are that you can make the most amount of money in a short amount of time. And when we look at the 25th precinct, which is the precinct that you know covers 125th Street in that area, um, you know when they make drug trafficking arrests, they're finding out two very important. Uh, things about the people they're arresting. Number one, they're from out of out of state or out of town. And number two, this is their first arrest. That indicates that it's people coming here specifically with the purpose of selling, uh, selling drugs in East Harlem. So wow. we are creating a market for drug trafficking. And, you know, uh, for, for the listeners out there and the, and the folks watching who are dealing with substance use disorder, y'all know better than than I do um, because I, I, you know, I've been fortunate ne- not to have to deal with this personally, but when you take methadone, even if you have alcohol afterwards, it, 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 it creates like a downing effect on your body right. to the point where right. you, you become zombie-like. And that's why you see so many people, you know, in the middle of the day, you know, kind of just like, you know, throwing, off. yeah, um, we have a, a problem with K2 being sold and K2 synthetic yes. marijuana and, you know, unfortunately, it's way more potent than 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 regular marijuana. And then you have the rampant, you know, use of heroin and other, you know, cocaine, crack, all that stuff. It, it's just everywhere. And it's so easy to get that. I mean, it's re- like I, I'm saying we're, fa- we're we're failing our neighbors by, by doing this. We're failing people uh, by doing this. Um, so the, the solution is not, is not pretty and it's certainly not sexy. The solution is we need to change the way that these programs operate. Right now, these programs are paid by the number of people they service it's mm-hmm. called throughput. Right? Yes. So if they have 500 heads you know, per day, then they get X amount of money. Um, it doesn't matter if folks get better. The money is in the, you know, the treatment, not the cure. That's right. We need to turn and we need to change the way these contracts are written. We need to change the way these, uh, you know, grants are given to these folks, to, to these organizations and make it more results based. You know, th- there's a, a therapy that exists that can help eliminate the need to use methadone for, you know, a good majority of people, which is, you know, Suboxone or uh, buprenorphine. Right. And that's a pill that people take every day that blocks her- the, the opioid receptors in your body. So that even if you, you know, inject heroin after taking it, it won't have any effect on you. Yeah. And that helps eliminate the withdrawal symptoms that also helps, you know, get people clear minded enough to get further treatment. Um, there are also, you know, uh, facilities out there that are doing a good job and offering more wraparound services. We already have one here in East Harlem. Um, Exodus transitions, you know, yeah. they, they work specifically with folks who are reentering from, from prison, formerly incarcerated individuals. Um, and they're, they're down, uh, you know, on third Avenue and they do substance, uh, use treatment. But then what they do is after folks get treated, they put them into a program where there'd be, you know, mental health counseling, where there'd be job training, where there'd be, you know, some sort of skills training, um, they keep folks there, they feed them, they make sure that they're safe. Um, and those are the types of programs that we need to encourage. We can't just encourage this, you know, throughput ty- type of system. So, you know, one of the, the goals I have in going in Albany is changing the way we write these contracts. Um, I happen to be, you know, I'm a former contract council, uh, city council where I used to deal with city contracts. I have a lot of experience, uh, with contracting contract languages I want to take those skills up to Albany and teach them how to write a better contract so that, you know, we're, we're getting results, the results we're looking for. We want people to be cured. You know, we want these programs to be so good that they no longer have to exist. 
And the only way we can do that is by, uh, you know, changing the way they get paid. I, I agree because, and a key thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of these programs are actually called uh, what, what we will call methadone maintenance treatment program. Mm -hmm. The key word in that acronym is the M, the, the letter ma maintenance. Yeah. And so that needs to change, right? The maintenance meaning, yes, just keep them on the, keep them on the methadone. And I like how you mentioned the, the Suboxone as well. Obviously Suboxone is another, is a great alternative as well. Um, I had the, I had the uh, privilege of earlier when I, in my twenties, I worked for a methadone maintenance treatment program. I was actually a counselor. So that's why when you mentioned those things, I, I kind of, I know I, I learned a little bit about that. Um, long story, how I got into it. I had no experience on my own, but I, I learned it because I thought it was a nice thing to learn about when I got into it. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And, um, I've, yeah. I've done I've done a ton of research on this. Uh, a former college, uh, you know, classmate of mine, Dr. Ross Sullivan, is doing some great work on on this very issue in uh, upstate New York. Um, and the the data doesn't lie. You know, when you when you set people up to fail, they're going to fail. Um, if you make it easy, if you make it easier for folks to get treatment near where they live, because this is a fair share issue. And when you hear fair share. Um, being tossed around, it means that the addiction issues aren't just an East Harlem problem. Every neighborhood in the city is dealing with addiction issues. Yes. Well, then every single neighborhood should have treatment available for their residents. There are no treatment centers on the Upper East Side. There are none on the Upper West Side. Uh, there are very mm -hmm. few that exist outside of East Harlem, Central Harlem, and uh, Washington Heights, three communities of color, Gee, I wonder why they put them there. So right. again, right. this goes back to the you know to to the original issue that we're still dealing with is that the reason why they're there is because of modern day redlining. And what does that do to the small businesses on 125th Street? You know, what does that do to the people who live in around there? You know, I, I every single day I go up to you know the Triangle, you know, uh, north of uh, of 125th Street, whether it be MS, AK, or 7075 houses. Why? Because I'm doing a lot of work with those residents and their biggest issue is the, the drug problem. You know, they're already dealing with terrible housing conditions. And then on top of that, you throw the fact that you have to dodge, you know, people trying to sell you drugs. You got to dodge mm -hmm. the, the syringes on the ground. And sometimes because of the, the drug trafficking, you're dodging bullets as well. That's not that, that that's no way for people to live. And these are hardworking, you know, people who are just trying to make a better life. Agreed. Agreed. No, that's well said. Well said. Um, so before we go, before we wrap up, I, I want to get into some, like, as far as your life away from uh, what you do, right? Public service. Uh, are you a sports fan? I am. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I played football in uh, high school and in college. Um, I, I would never, ever, ever like to play football ever again. I have like bad trauma, but you know, I enjoy watching it. I, I like watching baseball. Uh, I've also gotten into, you know, soccer recently. European soccer yeah. has been, a, a you know, kind of a fun way for me to relax Saturday mornings. Who are you? Oh yeah. Th that's the best thing is that English premier league, like when you wake up and you're watching, it's right there. Like if you're having breakfast and it's because of the time it is over there across the pond, it's like the best thing. Right. And you're watching. Yeah. And it's like the best, the top, you know, league EPL, like yeah. the, the best league there is. I think it has the best balance, the English Premier League, in my opinion. It's not like Liga where Liga is like so top heavy. Yeah. You, you have know? Two, two teams that dominate everything and everyone else is just playing for third. That's not right. It, it's not fair. No, that's a, that's another discussion, though. Um, Giants or Jets? Uh, I grew up a Jet fan, but my heart was broken when they when they drafted Kyle Brady in the early '90s. So I, I have to be a, a Giants fan now. What? Oh it my, my God! Heart, man. You no, breaking Rich, my heart right now. I'm a Rich Jets Kotite. fan. <laughs> look, look, I, I'll go old school. Rich Kotite killed it for me. He was the former uh, coach of the uh, uh, of the Jets, and I think in two seasons he won three games. I don't know how how that happens in modern day. Yeah, but I bet you you came back when Belichick, when when, when Parcells was there. Did you uh, not? Or you how know, about when Rex was there? You know, I still was I I still was cheering for the Giants in those days. You know, you know, I I, I probably 
when they had Belichick for like two days, I was kind of getting excited, and then he dropped the- <laughs> for two days. <laughs> yeah, Belichick for two days. He's like, I quit. I don't want to be he's here. Like, I'm, he's like, yeah, no, nah, the Patriots offered me a better contract. So yeah, I you know I I I'll, I'll tell you, I prefer watching college football than than pros. Um, you know, I, I grew up watching Notre Dame. I grew up watching, you know, the, uh, the, those powerhouse teams, you know, of the SEC. So, uh, I, I still prefer watching, uh, college football. It's fun. Yeah. I agree. College football is fun. I love watching college football. So I agree with you. Um, all right. Yankees or Mets? I'm a Yankees fan. Uh, my, my old man was a Yankee fan from the, from day one. Uh, so in the house, we grew up Yankees all the way. I could tell you where I was at every Yankee championship. I could tell, you know, uh, you know, my, my dad, may he rest in peace, uh, passed away in 2014. And one of the last conversations we had was about the Yankees. So that, that, that's, that, that's a personal one on me. God bless, man. Listen, it's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, definitely uptown Manhattan is definitely Yankee territory. Full disclosure. I'm a Mets fan. Um, I love the Mets. But it's it's because of where I grew up, right? Like I grew up in Brooklyn, and I used to hang out in Queens. So it's like yeah. I grew up on the, on the other side of town. So before we go, right? Yeah. Since I grew up on the other side of town, I did not know about this one particular item. I'm gonna ask you about really as much as I've learned about it when I went uptown and I went to Harlem and I seen all this. The chopped cheese sandwich. Talk to me about the chopped cheese sandwich. Ah, uh, so you got to come to Haji's up here in East Harlem. The the birthplace of the chopped cheese is right here on First Avenue. Uh, I, I think it's between 110 and 111. So the chopped cheese I fell in love with uh, about 10 years ago. And <laughs> you know, for those of you that don't know what a chopped cheese is, think about a cheesesteak, but with a hamburger. So they literally chop it up on, on it. They throw the, the peppers, the onions, salt, pepper, little sazon, little adobo. And then they, they throw some cheese on there. They toast the bread with a little bit of mayo, a little bit of ketchup. They slide it on there. And it's like the best, most satisfying sandwich you ever have. I consider myself to be a connoisseur uh, because I go around from place to place. And that's how I judge how good a bodega is. That's how I judge how good uh, deli spot is, <laughs> is how good is the chopped cheese. Um, they're, they're, you know, don't get the turkey chop. Don't get all this other. It has to be the original. You, 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 you got to try it like that. I even had someone offer me, and this is like a bad sign of gentrification, an impossible chopped cheese. No, come yeah. on. You can't have no yeah. impossible. Like, like like a vegetarian – come on. I was like, man, I'd rather just have the vegetables at that point. But, dude, the chopped cheese, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that it was uh, invented here, uh, and, I, and I'm proud that it's starting to pick up notoriety. I think in the, in the next 10 years, it will become the official sandwich of New York City. So move over, bacon, egg, and cheese. Chopped cheese is coming. I agree. No, I agree. I, I listen. I wanted your take on it. I because I I didn't, you know, I, I grew up on the other side of town, so it's like, for me, learning about the chopped cheese, I'm like, this is interesting, and I'm like, hey, this is cool, right? Um, my favorite sand, sandwich was growing up was not the bacon egg and cheese either. Actually, my favorite sandwich was a Cuban sandwich. Oh, yeah, I mean. Hey, there's a there's a great spot on 116th. Uh, uh, sorry, on Lex between 116 and 117 called Bermuda's Bakery. You gotta go there early. It looks a little sketchy, but that's how you know it's good. Those are the best places. I agree. Those are the best places. They they have the the the, the coffee going, and that's all they do is the the Cuban sandwich. Get a get a, get a mitad for for seven bucks. It'll be crunchy. It'll be the pickles just right. The right mix of of mustard. That's a, that you know. There's some mornings my wife wakes me up and she's like, "Can you go to the?" Ba-? I'm like, "God damn it, I gotta, I gotta get up, go uptown, and go pick one up." But it's that good. You, you'll, you'll crave it. No, no, no. Tenemos que hablar de eso online, <laughs> offline. We'll talk about that offline there because I need to. Because I'm a, I'm a cafetero, hardcore. Yeah. Like I, like cafete, like I grew up like you know, full disclosure. I grew up very like hibarito style. Like I grew up drinking coffee like since before I could walk. Like, <laughs> so I need that in my life. So we'll talk about that. So uh, before you go, just tell everybody, remind everybody about June 28th yeah. and um, any last thoughts you want to have uh, with the audience. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about a lot. If you want to learn more about the campaign or my platform, Plug it. Our, our website, Lopez4ny.com. That's L-O-P-E-Z-F-O-R-N-Y.com. 
follow us on all the socials. It's Lopez for New York, same, same spelling on all the socials. Uh, we're on everything except TikTok because you're not going to catch me doing a dance right now. Um, but, you know, get ready. Early, uh, early voting starts June 18th. It's a Democratic primary, so you have to be a registered Democrat. You can still register to vote up until June 2nd. So if you're not registered, register to vote. Um, and you can also find out all that information on our website, lopez4ny.com. Well, listen, Will Lopez, it was such a, it was an honor. It was a privilege to have you on here. It really was. And I know that you're getting ready to really, you know, do big things. It really great talking to you about all these different things. We will connect offline. We have to. And um, it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing what you're going to do next because I know you're going to do big things. So uh, I, I appreciate it. And thank you so much for the invitation. I look forward to, to continuing to talk. Absolutely. Will Lopez, everybody. And um, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Got it. Right. Man, so Wilfredo Lopez, that was great. I mean, I didn't think in my wildest dreams that I would have someone who is in public service on this platform. And I picked a good one. Or he picked us. But you know what? It was great. Um, it was really good. And um, I look forward to to continuing to build with uh, with him as well. He's a good guy and I definitely got to see what he's doing, you know, moving forward as well. Cause he's got a lot of things going on. He's got great ideas. Um, and I know he's going to look to really push it forward and really, uh, make some things happen, you know, with, with the help of the people as well, obviously. So, uh, I want to thank my guest, and of course, guys, if you are listening on YouTube, give it, give it a thumbs up, subscribe. Of course, if you're listening to the audio version, share it the whole thing and again that was episode number 40 so again once again as always don't just say what you mean or mean what you say say it with your chest peace